And as you take your seat, you can take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5, 16 through 26. That'll be our text for this morning. After finishing a two-part series on Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 8, 1 through 17, uh, I wanted to go uh, a step further to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and uh, study this morning uh, basically two things. Number one, the fact of Christian conflict, and that is between the flesh and the Spirit, as Paul outlines in verses 16 through 23, and then the last two verses of the passage, uh, the way of Christian victory in verses 24 to 26, the way to Christian victory. So that'll be our uh, outline this morning as we look at the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit and what the Lord uh, tells us to do in terms of pursuing walking in the Spirit and living a life that is characterized by the Spirit of God. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we desire to see Jesus and Him only. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would saturate our minds and our hearts as we look into your word this morning. Lord, take these familiar words and bring them to life in our hearts and lives. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first of all, the fact of Christian conflict. And you'll notice Paul uh, speaks in verse 16 of the flesh. And what he means by that uh, is our nature of inheritance, what we inherited from our uh, father, Adam, our fallen condition. The New English Bible and J.B. Phillips call it our lower nature. That's something that every one of us has as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. And by the Spirit, of course, he means the Holy Spirit himself, who renews and regenerates us by giving us a new nature, a new principle of life. And then he remains in us, dwelling in us, throughout the whole of the Christian life. And so in summary, the flesh, we are by nature, or natural birth, that is what the flesh is, and the spirit is what we are by the new birth. Now in verse 17 he says, these two, the flesh and the spirit, are in sharp opposition to each other. Some teachers maintain that Christians have no inner conflict, no civil war, as if everything were thoroughly peaceful whenever one is converted to Christ. Well, this uh, passage is in conflict with that type of teaching. We Christians know not only from the Bible, but also personal experience, that there is a, a civil war going on inside of us. The old nature and the new nature. The flesh and the spirit. And they are irreconcilable throughout the Christian life. As we learn to walk in the Spirit, the flesh becomes increasingly subdued. But the flesh and the Spirit remain in conflict, and this conflict never goes away. In fact, some scholars go so far as to say this conflict is exclusively Christian. And what they mean by that is while pagan peoples, while non-Christians may have a moral dilemma, and they may struggle sometimes with a matter of conscience, you can multiply that several times for the Christian. Because he or she is dealing with that flesh and spirit opposition, that conflict that goes on. 
Well, Paul goes on here in this passage to describe the behavior of the two natures. First of all, the works of the flesh. And uh, he tells us that these works are part of our old nature. And they may be invisible inside of us, but the fruit of these works certainly comes out in behavior. And I want to remind you, this is not an exhaustive list because Paul wraps it up by saying, in things like these. So it's simply characteristic, I suppose, of some ordinary and common areas where believers, according to Paul's experience, were falling back, especially we think of a place like Corinth. There seems to be four spheres or four areas, four particular areas of these works of the flesh. And they would be uh, these four, sex, religion, society, and drink. Sex, religion, society, and drink. First of all, the sphere of sex. You'll see the words immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The word for immorality is normally fornication, meaning sexual intercourse between unmarried people. But it may refer to any kind of unlawful sexual behavior. Unlawful by what I mean there is God's word condemning it and not endorsing it. Immorality comes from the word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. The term has a broad meaning referring to all illicit sexual activity, especially but not limited to adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, and prostitution. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1, Paul uses the term to refer to a form of incest that was actually being practiced in the church by a man who was sleeping with his mother or his stepmother. And Paul uses the same word in four or five other places in his writings. The word impurity means, or could be rendered, unnatural vice, sensuality or licentiousness. Some translations say indecency, alluding to an open and reckless contempt of propriety when it comes to sexual relations. Sensuality, originally referred to excess, any excess, or lack of restraint, but it came to be associated primarily with sexual excess. It is unrestrained sexual indulgence, such as become so common in the modern Western world. We're living in an age where sexual relations have all but become a god. I would say certainly have become a god. Where people worship this sort of thing. And they devote their entire lives and being to it. Now these three words are sufficient to show that all sexual offenses, whether public or private, whether between the married or the unmarried, whether natural or unnatural, are to be classed as works of the flesh. We may see these things in our society, and society may even approve of them. I think we're coming to a day when society will force us more and more to give approval of some forms of sexual perversion. But the Bible is clear, absolutely clear, crystal clear, that these things are not characteristic of life in the Spirit. They're not characteristic of a life that God intended. And we Christians must hold the line at that point and realize that we're all sinners, and there are those that are caught up in sexual sin. And they need mercy and grace, but also a warning from Scripture that we cannot go on calling ourselves Christians and live like this. Well, that is the sphere of sexual relations. Notice the sphere of religion in verse 20. He speaks of idolatry and sorcery. 
It's important to see that idolatry is as much a work of the flesh as immorality, and that thus the works of the flesh include offenses against God, as well as against our neighbor and against ourselves. Idolatry is the brazen worship of other gods. In a modern society, many things can function as idols. Money, for instance, material goods, reputation, even pleasure, luxury. These things, and many, many other things, can become idols. Sorcery is secret tampering with the powers of evil. Employment of drugs for sorcery and magic and enchantment. Aristotle and other ancient Greek writers use the word as a synonym for witchcraft and black magic. Basically, it points to anything in the occult world. We Christians are told to stay away from those things. And this is what people who don't walk in the Spirit give themselves to. The Bible says in Exodus twenty-two eighteen, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. All those things were condemned in sacred scripture. Palm readers, tarot card readers. As the Lord says, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? You can go to the Word of God and see the sovereign God over all the universe if you want to determine what His will is. There's nothing left to chance. Well, that is the sphere of religion. Then there's the sphere of society. Paul gives us eight examples of the breakdown of personal relationships as a result of sin. He speaks of enmity first, and that basically means quarrels. Someone who's always quarrelsome and fussing and fighting. Strife, as the NEB puts it, the uh, contentious temper. Jealousy or envy. Outburst of anger, basically fits of rage. Disputes, selfish ambitions. And dissensions and factions and envying. Uh, I think all of these things can be summarized in uh, putting self ahead of God and others. We're living in a society engulfed in narcissism, self-gratification, and self-fulfillment. And we demonstrate being led by the flesh not only when we prioritize our bodily appetites over spiritual disciplines, but also when we seek to get ahead by stepping on others. And those are the sins that we see in society. And the Christian is told to put them off. And it's shown that the Spirit of God doesn't enhance these things. He doesn't highlight them. He wants us to put them aside. And then, fourthly, the sphere of drink. He speaks of drunkenness and carousing. Or the New English Bible says drinking bouts and orgies in verse 21. The Bible doesn't condemn alcoholic beverages, but it does condemn drunkenness. And it condemns addiction to alcohol. And so Paul concludes this section with a solemn warning in verse 21b. I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the word practice is important here. The verb in the Greek New Testament is referring to an habitual practice rather than an isolated lapse. And since God's kingdom is a kingdom of godliness and righteousness and self-control, those who indulge in the works of the flesh will be excluded from it. For such works give evidence that they are not in Christ. I love the words of John MacArthur in connection to this. He says, quote, Scripture always assesses a person's character on the basis of his common 
habitual actions, not on occasional ones. People who habitually indulge in sin show themselves to be enemies of God, whereas those who habitually do good or show themselves to be his children. The unregenerate person occasionally does humanly good things, and the regenerate person occasionally falls into sin. But the basic character of the unregenerate is to practice the evil deeds of the flesh and of the regenerate person to bear the good fruit of the Spirit. Once again, 1 John says, if we claim to have no sin, we're liars. The Bible maintains that tension of always being cognizant of present remaining sin in ourselves and yet not practicing sin habitually, that we would do away with it. More about that in a few minutes. And then Paul turns his attention from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. You'll notice in verses 22 and 23. And here we have a cluster of nine Christian graces which seem to portray a Christian's attitude to God, to other people, and to him or herself. First of all, Godward. Paul mentions love and joy and peace. This is a triad of general Christian virtues. Yet they seem primarily to concern our attitude towards God. Christian's first love is his love for God. His chief joy is his joy in the Lord. And his deepest peace is the peace he has with God. Secondly, manward. He speaks of patience, kindness, and goodness. These are social virtues. They're manward rather than Godward in their direction. And patience is long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute. Kindness is a question of disposition and goodness of words and deeds. Do you demonstrate yourself as a kind, patient, good person when people think about you and their interaction with you? Also, self-word. He speaks of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness appears to describe the reliability of a Christian. Do you keep your word when you say you will do something? Christians should be known for keeping their word. They should be known for that sense of faithfulness to God and to their neighbor. Also, gentleness and self-control. Both are aspects of self-mastery, which concludes the list. And we can look at these lists and we can say, sometimes I see myself with the works of the flesh. I'd like to see more often the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And the only way to do that is to put the flesh to death. And that's what Paul goes on in the second point, which I want to spend the bulk of time on this morning, is the way of Christian victory in verses 24 and 25. He says, first of all, we must crucify the flesh. This verse is frequently misunderstood. Note that the crucifixion of the flesh described here is something that is done not to us, but by us. If we ourselves, it is we ourselves who are said to have crucified the flesh. You see, Paul says in Galatians 2.20 and Romans 6.6, we have been crucified with Christ by a faith union with him. But here, we take the action. We have crucified our old nature. It is not a dying which we have experienced through union with Christ. It is rather a deliberate putting to death what does that mean? Well, Paul borrows the image of crucifixion, of course, from Christ himself who said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
To take up a cross was the Lord's vivid figure of speech for self-denial. And every follower of Christ is to behave in a, like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. That's challenging words, isn't it? It's something that no one would do unless the Spirit of God were motivating them to do it. Paul takes the metaphor to the logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. This is Paul's graphic description of repentance, of turning our back on the old life, the selfishness and sin, and repudiating it finally and utterly. Now this has some implications. I'd like to mention three. Number one, the rejection of the old nature must be pitiless. It must be pitiless. You cannot show your flesh pity. Crucifixion was not a pleasant form of execution. If therefore we are to crucify our flesh, it is plain that the flesh is not something respectable to be treated with courtesy and deference, but something so evil that it deserves no better fate than to be crucified. That's what the Lord is saying. You cannot show pity. If you do, you'll be going backwards all the time. Often we wonder about those sins that we keep on committing over and over and over again. And we may have questions in our minds. Am I really belonging to Christ? How can I go on in habitual sin? It may be the problem that you're showing pity to your flesh. Your flesh is not your friend. The old nature must be crucified. And secondly, it's going to be painful. Crucifixion was a form of execution attended with intense pain. And all of us know the path or the pain of inner conflict with the fleeting pleasures of sin. Whenever we renounce them, there's a desire to go back. There's sometimes a desire to crawl back and to nurse those things. No, we have to accept the fact that this is going to be painful. And our culture is telling us all the time to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Well, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to crucifying the flesh. And this is one of the reasons we need Christian community. We need one another in this battle against the flesh. Thirdly, the rejection of our old nature is to be decisive. Although death by crucifixion was a lingering death, it was a certain death. Criminals were nailed to a cross, did not survive. And once a criminal had been nailed to the cross, he was left there to die. Most of the time, there would be a detachment of soldiers whose sole mission was to make sure that that man being crucified died. And they would not leave until it was over. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, Paul says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Very interesting. The Greek verb in the, is in the aorist tense, indicating that this is something we did decisively at the moment of conversion. When we came to Jesus Christ, we repented. We crucified everything we knew to be wrong. We took our old self-centered nature with all of its sinful passions and desires and nailed it to the cross. And this repentance of ours was decisive, as decisive as a crucifixion. And so Paul says, if we have crucified the flesh, we must leave it there to die. 
We must renew every day this attitude towards sin with ruthless, uncompromising rejection. In the language of Jesus, as Luke records it, and every Christian must take up his cross daily, not just once, but daily. You see, the first great secret of holiness, ladies and gentlemen, lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it may be that either we have never truly repented or, having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. It's got to be a daily thing. It is as if, having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. And it's fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we are going to give in to it or not. We've declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We've settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are not going to remove the nails, so to speak. That's what crucifixion of the flesh means. And I believe we need to see that, brothers and sisters, more and more. This battle that we face is not just a personal battle. But whenever we put the flesh to death, as I mentioned last time we were together, that is the true roadway, the pathway of fellowship with the living God. There is a kind of death that leads to life and a kind of life that leads to death, as I mentioned last week. And when we die to ourselves and we take up our cross daily, there is something supernatural that happens inside of us. There is a power released to assist us in holiness, to put off the old nature and to put on the new nature. And we must do that if we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells us to crucify the flesh, first of all, if we're going to have Christian victory. But then secondly, we must walk by the Spirit in verse 25. But what I want you to notice about this is it's both uh, active and passive. I should say just not passive only. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit is the passive part. We find ourselves in Christ Jesus. We are in union with Him. His Spirit lives inside of us. That is something that God did on His own apart from us. He placed His Spirit in us. But then He tells us to walk by the Spirit. And that is the active part. We must rely on the Spirit's leadership while we proactively walk according to His steps. Like following in footsteps. That is what the Christian is supposed to give himself or herself to. And that's what walking in the Spirit means. It means a humble reception daily, that the Spirit of God would permeate my entire life, that I would set myself in the right direction to honor and glorify God, but then to proactively do those things that I know to be right, and I avoid those things I know to be wrong. This will be seen in our whole way of life, in the leisure occupations we pursue, the books we read, the friendships we make. What kind of friends do you have? Do they build you up spiritually? Are they seeking to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? Your best friends. A diligent, as the old authors used to say, above all, a diligent use of the means of grace. That is, in the disciplined practice of prayer, 
and scripture reading and meditation, in fellowship with other believers to provoke us to love and good deeds, in keeping the Lord's Day, making it a priority when we worship, and the Lord's Supper. In all these ways, we occupy ourselves with spiritual things. And it's not enough to yield passively to the Spirit's control. We must also walk actively in the Spirit's way. And only so will the fruit of the Spirit begin to appear in our lives. May God give us the grace and the mercy to live a life that is characterized by being led and controlled and motivated by His Holy Spirit, that we may demonstrate those works and the fruit that can only come from His hand in the life of one who has submitted to Him and seeking to obey Him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Spirit. We live by faith, Lord, and we cannot see You. We cannot see the Holy Spirit. And yet we know whenever there is fruit that that Spirit lives inside of us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that You would encourage us in the battle to crucify the flesh. Lord, remind us when we first came to faith in You, the freshness of our repentance, the sincerity of it. And Lord, if it's not real in our lives, make it real. The kindness of God leads to repentance, as Paul said. And so I pray that you would awaken every one of us, Lord, and that we would take our repentance seriously. And then subsequently enjoy. Enjoy the presence and the power that you offer to us by your Spirit to enable us to live holy lives and to enjoy fellowship with you as we do it. Lord, bring it about. For those who don't know you, I pray this morning that their relationship with you would be solidified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that, Lord, you would fill all of us with your Holy Spirit, that we might lead this coming week lives that would bring glory and honor to your holy name. We pray all of these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.